Well, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Lovely to have you here with us today. My name is Corey. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I'm going to be walking us through the next part in our series on the Gospel of Mark. I almost said John, but it's Mark. I'm very certain of that, I hope. And uh, as we go through this, I want us to remember a couple things. As we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, Mark presents a few questions that he wants us to ask as we're reading through it. And because of the questions that he's asking, he's kind of pointing us to a specific place in Mark's Gospel. And when they get to that spot in just a couple chapters, we're going to see the real thread and the real reason for why Mark is writing this account. He is writing this account so that we ask the question, who is Jesus really? Because Jesus does things that nobody else can do, and he says things that nobody else should be able to claim. And so as we go through this passage, this very, very familiar miracle, I want us to make sure that that's what we have in our minds, that we're focused on Jesus because he's the actual point of the story. It's not the story itself, it's the story that the person, that the story points to is the person that we actually want to give our attentions to, okay? Before we do that, however, I want to remind us of something that Pastor Kevin shared earlier. We have, after this Sunday, only six more weeks to make fun of, uh, sorry, uh, to honor Charles and Cheryl. That was a joke. We obviously want to honor Charles and Cheryl, uh, but we need your help. We're putting together a little book of memories and thoughts and encouragements and prayers, and uh, this, is, this is significant. I have never in my life been in a church that has been so well-led by such a godly and focused man who is consistent in his approach to leadership and has given himself to the service of his community. We need to honor them for what they have done. It's God's good design that we honor those who are above us. And because Charles and Cheryl and Tiffany have been so instrumental in how West Park has become what it is over the last decade, it's appropriate for us to honor them. So you can put like a little 70, 75 word little thing together, email it to Michaela at the church, or even if you're confused, you know, I'm not sure how to spell Michaela, there's a lot of different spellings. You can just send it to the church office, that would be very, very helpful, and it'll get to the right person. But it's due, is it this Sunday or next Sunday? Next Sunday. That's whoever said it. Kevin said it. Next Sunday. So you've only got a little bit of time to get on that. And, and we, we just want to, to encourage and to bless them as they leave. And we don't want you to miss this opportunity to encourage them, to thank them for how God has been instrumental in your life through their ministry. Okay. So today what we're going to do is we're going to see in a miracle how Jesus shows us how deeply compassionate his heart is for his people. Now, I've titled today's message, The Feeding of the 5,000, because that's the obvious thing. That's where we're going to be in the text, is the feeding of the 5,000. And then from that, I want us to understand this point here. What we're actually looking at is how Jesus is God's true shepherd. It's really, really significant. That's, that's the thematic point of the entirety of where we're going. So if you would, please stand and get your Bibles ready with Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44, whether you've got it on your phone or you have a physical Bible with you or the one that's in the chair back in front of you. And, uh, and we're standing to honor God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Mark 6, 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat, Jesus said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place to get some rest. 
So they, the disciples, went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw this large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was getting late in the day. So the disciples came to Jesus and said, this is a remote place. It's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countrysides and the villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. The response was that this would take eight months wages. Are we supposed to go away and spend this much so that each can have a bite? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, Jesus gave thanks and broke the loaves. When he gave them to his disciples to set before the people, he also divided the two fish among them. They ate and all were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had, been, who had eaten was 5,000. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. So the big idea today is this. So the title is The Feeding of the 5,000. That should be apparent because that's the miracle that's taking place in the text. The kind of subtitle is God's True Shepherd because I hope that that's what you're going to see out of the passage. But the big idea is this. We can learn to better, better marvel at Jesus when we see how he extends compassion. To me, this is the point of preaching. This is the reason that we gather around God's word. It's not to learn more information. It's to be floored by the person of Christ. It's to see in him everything that we need, everything that God has designed for his mission to be about, and how it actually plays out in the life of our history as a Christian church is that Jesus comes to exemplify compassion in a way that is so much more deep than we realize that the only response that we should have is to be completely enamored by him. See, the, the miracle isn't the point of the miracle. That's what I'm trying to get at. The person who does it is the point. And so that's what I hope you will do today. You'll come away from this sermon completely floored at the compassion of Jesus. That you'll worship him because of this. Now, prior to this week's sermon, last week, Pastor Neil led us through like the soap opera of events of um, the Herodians and, and the Tetrarch Herod who had John the Baptist killed because he was too ashamed of making a promise to his, his daughter. And it was a whole weird, immoral mess. But what's important to understand about that is Mark places that at a really specific spot in the gospel. He's not just sequentially ordering things to make sure, okay, then this happened, then this happened, then this happened. A lot of times what the gospel writers will do is they'll, they'll package things together with themes. And so this theme of the disciples going and doing the ministry that Jesus had prompted them to do, and then we have this weird block of text where the, John the Baptist is beheaded and he's killed, and there's a feast that takes place. Mark puts this feast right on the heels of that to show us a contrast, how Herod is not the king that they actually need, that there's a better king that's coming and has actually come. So that's kind of the background. That's the thread, and here's where we're going. Okay. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and they reported to him all they had done and taught. So you remember earlier on in Mark chapter 5, Jesus says to the disciples, I'm sending you out two by two. 
it's not some Noah thing. It's just he was sending them up in Paris so they could protect each other. And when they were gone, they, they cast out demons that people had, and they also healed sicknesses and different physical infirmities. That was the mission that Jesus had sent them on. He had given them the authority to do that. So now they've come back to Jesus. They're around him. They're telling him all these amazing stories. Jesus, we healed this person. This person had a demon. We cast that demon out. And it's just, just this beautiful picture of what Jesus's ministry looks like. Then, because so many people, that's important because it's a theme throughout the whole thing, were coming and going that they, the disciples, didn't even have a chance to eat. Keep that in the back of your mind. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place to get some rest. Now, this quiet place could be translated solitary or away place, or it could also even be translated desert or wilderness place. So because the disciples have been healing people, not only is Jesus's ministry growing and people are becoming excited about what he's doing, but now the disciples are healing people. The disciples are casting out demons. So you can kind of think they walk into a town and everybody's like, oh, those are the guys that they do the miracles. Let's go and get them. Let's, let's spend some time with them. Let's get what we need from them. And so they became so busy that they had no opportunity even to have a chance to eat. So... Jesus said, let's get away by ourselves into a boat and we'll go to this solitary place. Now, he does so to show them that they need to rest. Jesus' mission to this point is to go away by himself, to come back after he's had time with God, to do the ministry of casting out demons and preaching in synagogues and, and healing people and all these sorts of things, and then to go away again and have a time of rest. So what Jesus is doing is he's inviting the disciples into this understanding of what ministry looks like. You're supposed to pray and prepare and then go and do and then rest. Rest is significant. But many who saw them leaving, who were trying to get out into this boat, they recognized the disciples. Well, how could they not? <laughs> then they ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Now, this there is like a retroactive. Mark is putting this in place after the event takes place, obviously. He's saying that the people were clamoring to see Jesus. As he's in the boat, he's along the shore. And as they go past towns, there's a crowd that's massing even greater amounts. And there's more people gathering. And there's more and more people coming from the villages and the towns. And they just, they can't help but want to be near Jesus and hear these things and see the miracles and all the stuff that's been going on so far. And then this is the key verse of the entire passage. This is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time. When Jesus landed and saw such a large crowd, he had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. Now, compassion, the word in Greek, is not just like, oh, he, he feels badly for them or he loves them. It's the idea of the guts or the bowels of a person. In the ancient context, what this means is that when you felt something, you didn't just feel it in your heart. You felt it in your whole self. So because it was so deeply rooted, Jesus saw the large crowd and he had what's, what's splenchnizomai is the Greek word. That kind of, it's, it's, you don't really need to know that, but what it is is this deeply rooted seat of what's called the place of love and the place of pity. Jesus sees these people who are clamoring to be near him, clamoring to be with him and the disciples. They're growing in numbers. And as Jesus sees them, they stop at this place and they, he gets out of the boat because he deeply loves and is concerned for them. Now, he does so because there's a reason to it. It's not just that he feels bad, but because they the people who had been clamoring around to see him, were like sheep without a shepherd. That's the key. Remember I said that the whole point is God's true shepherd? I want you to marvel at God's true shepherd. 
And because of this, he began to teach them many things. Now, this idea of teaching is not just like what I'm doing and standing up in front of people and giving a sermon. This word, teaching, is more like a dialogue. So people are coming to Jesus. They're asking him questions. He's interacting with them. He's not just saying, okay, here's your problem, and I'll tell you all the solutions, that kind of situation. Instead, he's saying, I want to help you learn this. I want to help you understand these things deeply. And there's no record of what Jesus specifically was teaching them, but we can kind of make assessments from other things that Jesus taught. He taught about the kingdom of God. He talked about his own person and mission. He talked about what it meant to live life the way that humans were supposed to live it. So Jesus loves and pities these people because they're like sheep that have no shepherd. And so like a sheep that don't have a shepherd, what he does is he inserts himself into this position. Now, what's interesting is that this phrase is far more important than what we would typically give credit to. Like, you know when you read through a text of the Bible and you just kind of like, okay, well, then this happened, then this happened, and it just kind of makes a statement. It makes a statement like this, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. It's a nice word picture. It kind of helps you see that these people were lost or they needed something. They needed somebody to lead them. But it's actually a really significant Old Testament theme. The idea of God's people not having a shepherd to lead them started all the way back in the book of Numbers. Actually, before that, in the book of Exodus, as Moses is sent by God to release the people from their bondage and slavery in Egypt, and he makes a big old statement like, let my people go, and Pharaoh says no, and then there's the whole plagues thing, and then God leads them out through Moses and Aaron. And as Moses and Aaron are in the wilderness and God provides for the people with bread from heaven, the manna from heaven and the quail on the ground and he provides water for them to eat and then they start complaining because they want to go back to, they want to go back to Egypt because at least they didn't have to eat dirt bread or whatever and they start to have these conversations and they start frustrating and they're, they're complaining at God about all the things that he's not doing for them. And so Moses and God have a conversation and this is what he says. Who shall go out before them and come in before them? Who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may what? Not be as sheep without a shepherd. Now this is Moses saying, I know that I'm not going into the promised land because I've rejected God's plan and he struck the rock and there's that whole drama that ensued. And then because of that, God raises up Joshua. And then Joshua leads the people into the promised land, right? You remember that story? But this is Moses' heart. He wants to know that the people are going to be looked after. And this theme actually progresses all the way through the Old Testament, that God's people need the right kind of shepherd. And then the, the children of Israel, they decide, okay, well, we had Moses and we had some prophets and things, and well, actually the, the other nations have kings. Let's make ourselves a king. And they choose Saul, and God says, you don't need a king. I'm your king. I'm going to shepherd you. I'm going to lead you. People go, no, no, no. We want to have our own kind, cause like, like all the other nations have. So we have somebody to look up to, somebody to point us in the right direction. And God goes, you don't need that, but if you're going to choose, go ahead and choose. They choose Saul. And Saul was a good king for about 30 seconds. And then he continued to do things that God was displeased by, and then eventually God stripped Saul of his right to rule the kingdom, and he replaced him with who? David. Now, David is significant, right? Because what was David's role before he was a king? He was a shepherd. And so in Ezekiel, in the middle of your Old Testament, in a prophecy about what God was going to provide for the people, because they had wandered away, they had listened to their kings, their kings were basically terrible all the time. You can count the number of good kings that Israel and Judah had on one hand. They had these terrible kings that were never doing what was right. 
God says this, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. Well, this isn't prophecy about David because David came before Ezekiel. So what God is saying is I'm going to send somebody in the line of David, somebody who's like David, who's a shepherd king, somebody who's in the place of David, and he shall feed them. And he shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. That was the whole point in the beginning. And my servant David shall be prince among them. Then he says, I am the Lord. I have spoken, saying, this is a promise. You can take it to the bank and know that I'm going to do it. See, this was always God's plan. The children of Israel continued to run away from what God had wanted for them. And as Israel continued to produce for themselves different kings that were supposed to lead the people the way that a good shepherd is supposed to lead the people, they just kept on blowing it. And so God said, I'm going to replace all your shepherds with my shepherd. I'm going to replace all these kings with my king. And that's what he's established here. So what we have that, that Mark puts in the gospel is this really clever retroactive perspective on looking at, okay, so in verse 34, when he says, Jesus has compassion on them because they were lost like sheep who had no shepherd. He's saying, remember Israel all the times that you didn't have a shepherd that way that you needed to? Mark places that in there to help us go, oh, is this the shepherd? We're supposed to be asking ourselves that question. Who is Jesus really? So it's not some flippant statement just that these people are wandering around and they're kind of near the sea and Jesus is there to take care of them. It's, it's a significant biblical prophetic thing that Jesus is fulfilling. He's the one who's taking them under his own care, out of the seat of love and pity, that they're shepherds who continued to do what was wrong, continued not to do the things that was right, and so God is replacing them with his own king, his own shepherd. Now, by this time, back to the text, it was getting late in the day. And Jesus and the disciples, they've been talking to these people. Jesus had been teaching and dialoguing with folks. And he says, this is a remote place. That's what the disciples say. And it's getting very late. So send the people away so they can get food. Practical, right? They're, they've been sitting here. They've been around Jesus all day. We've, we've, been, we've been talking to them. And there's numbers and numbers of people gathering around. And they just keep on getting bigger and bigger. Okay, Jesus, I think the day is done. And they need to go home and get ready for evening meal. It makes sense. I don't think that's actually what the disciples are intending here, though. Most scholars would agree that the disciples, because the purpose of their going away was to be alone with Jesus. Now, their whole day of being alone with Jesus and learning the rhythm of rest has been taken completely aside by caring for the needs of others. They're saying, okay, Jesus, I think we've done enough. We can be kind of done with doing this ministry thing today. Remember that we need to go away and we need to get rest and we need to prepare for the next mission. And so they kind of have this almost like, okay, Jesus, we're going to put you in your place now. It's nice that you care about these people. They're missing the point. They want to have what they were promised by him earlier. But Jesus answers them amazingly, knowing exactly what they're thinking. How about you guys feed them? And they said to him, we can't do that. We don't have that kind of money. We're poor. We've been following you around for a whole bunch of months. We haven't been working. We don't have this kind of money. It would take more than a half a year's wages. And Matthew actually says in his text, this give them a bite to eat. It's like this small morsel. It's, it's like this tiny little bit. It's basically what you had in your communion cup. It's like if, we, if, we, if you wanted us to buy that much food for this amount of people, everybody's going to get this tiny little snippet of food and it's not actually going to satisfy anything. And so Jesus being 
who Jesus is, as John's gospel tells us about this same event, knowing in his mind what he had already set out to do, tells them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when the disciples found out, they said they had five loaves and two fish. Not a substantial amount of food. Actually, this is kind of a picture of what it would have been like. It's like small pita loaves. So like something you would dip into like a spinach and artichoke dip or something like that. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody hungry now? And two small fish or sardines. So only Pastor Charles would enjoy that. Right? Yeah. And so in, in a couple of the gospel records, it says like a small boy brought his lunch and then the sermon's all about how we're supposed to give to Jesus our little bit and he'll make much out of it. There's, there's nothing in the text that says that. It says that the disciples went in Mark's gospel, they asked who had food, and then they got five pieces of small pieces of bread, little barley loaves, and two fish. And then Jesus goes, okay, so let's feed everybody. And the disciples are looking going, the math... I'm not sure exactly how this is going to happen. Now, because Jesus knew in his mind what he was already going to do, it just continues to show us the disciples didn't get the point of his ministry yet. They weren't really following him with the things that he was doing. They were just excited about watching the things that he was doing and missing the point of what it actually was. So then Jesus directed the disciples, this them is the disciples, to have the people, the large crowd, sit down on the green grass, Remember that phrase. Remember green grass. It's significant. So they sat down in groups of 100s and groups of 50s. Remember how I said that the gospel writers are far too clever just to throw statements away? Having them sit down in 100s and 50s is categorizing them the exact same way that Moses did with the children of Israel a long time ago, putting people over them and kind of leading this, you're going to shepherd this little group and you're going to shepherd this little group and you're going to shepherd this little group. And so Mark is trying to help us see that what Jesus is doing is to echo what God had already done through Moses centuries and centuries and centuries in the past as he provided manna from heaven, as he provided quail in those desert places, in those wildernesses. And after taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven. Now there's some question about whether or not scholars think that Jesus was asking God's permission we're just going to ignore that. That's, that's not what's going on here. Jesus is showing solidarity with his father's mission. He looks up to heaven. He says a blessing. And this blessing is what's called in, uh, in Hebrews the Mishnah. And the Mishnah is a statement that the Jews would pronounce over meals or they, pr- they pronounce over um, their situations as they go to sleep or as they woke up. These different, uh, these different avenues of prayer. And it would kind of go something like, Blessed are you, the Lord our God, the King of the universe or the King of the world, who brings forth food or bread from the earth. That's signifying what God already did in the Old Testament to Moses in giving them manna from heaven. So Jesus, if that's the prayer that he prays, the Jewish mind is going, yeah, that's, that's what Jesus would have done. That's the right thing to do. He broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, and they set it before the people. And he divided up the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. So the math doesn't really matter because Jesus does whatever he wants with the physical stuff that's in front of him. Now what strikes people as odd in these records is if you talk to somebody or if you read anybody who is skeptical about uh, biblical narratives or they're non-believing skeptics or scholars about the Old Testament and the New Testament, they they would see this they as a significant word. And they all ate and were satisfied. 
some would suggest that this is just the disciples that ate. It was just the disciples that ate. So Jesus broke up the five loaves and the two fish. He just gave it to the disciples to show the people that this is, this is kind of like an object lesson about sharing. I think it misses the point. Other non-believing scholars would suggest that it can't be a miracle because miracles don't happen. Therefore, as Jesus started to share the little bit that he had, other people started to bring food out from their, their miraculously hidden stores all over the wilderness where they had food everywhere. They just kind of brought it along and said, oh, we'll share too. I think that also misses the point. Or that it's that they all ate and they just, they came and they had like this tiny little sliver of bread and it was just enough and they were all satisfied because they understood that they were cared for. I think it actually takes more faith to believe that than to believe that God incarnate can do a miracle by taking the things that are normative to the world and saying, this is an improper order because there's not enough for the task at hand. So I'm going to reorder it. I'm going to perform a miracle, something that doesn't make sense to our human senses and provide in a way that is beyond what people can comprehend. Now, if it was one of those skeptical kind of approaches, why include it in all four Gospels? This is the only miracle that Jesus does that's included in every one of the Gospels. So it's significant. It's significant because it shows us that Jesus is the true shepherd that the people needed. No, the resounding response to this miracle is that when Jesus commands the physical to appear out of nothing in creation, it does so. In proper order, the supernatural becomes natural. The impossible becomes possible. Jesus, as God's representative and God in the world, does what he wants. That's the point. And they looked up, they, sorry, and they, the disciples, took up the 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate... So the, the whole skeptic thing about just the disciples? No. We're 5,000 men. Now, men is qualified in here in the English. It just says 5,000 were fed. But in Matthew's gospel, it says 5,000 men were fed, including women and children. So we're actually talking about a small town. We're kind of talking about like Jesus got Ingersoll together and fed them all. He went over to Strathroy and was like, hmm, how can I provide lunch for everybody? And that's what he does. So after they take these things up, we made note of this. There's 12 baskets full. Now, this is significant. Remember how I said Mark doesn't throw away phrases? When you go back to Israel, there were 12 tribes. And the 12 tribes of Israel were required to bring what's called the bread of the presence. It's a piece of bread that they would make without leaven. They would bring it to the temple courts, particularly at this time when we're talking about Moses, to the tabernacle. The tabernacle was God's impermanent dwelling place. They would move around with them. They would bring these 12 pieces of bread, one, one as an example of each of the 12 different tribes. They'd stack them on top of each other. It would go into the holy place in the temple, and it would signify that God had provided manna from heaven in this miraculous way to remind the Israelites God is the one who provides. So 12 baskets is not just coincidental because there's 12 disciples. There are 12 disciples because there are 12 new heads of God's new kingdom, the church. And the disciples are chosen as 12 to be the representatives of what it looks like to be tribal Israel over God's kingdom. That's the point. So the disciples now have witnessed this thing. They're going around. We don't actually have anything that tells us how the miracle happened, though. Just that it did. So whether it's like, it's not some sleight of hand thing where Jesus is like, and here's some bread for you, and here's some bread for you. And we don't have any notice of that just that it happened, and that there was such an abundance of it that the disciples had 12 baskets of food left over. It's amazing. 
There were 5,000 men in attendance, significantly more people than just those 5,000. And all of them were fed and all of them were satisfied because God always satisfies the needs of his people. That's the point. So on your notes, you have three little blanks. I'm gonna go through these quickly, but I hope that you'll see them out of the text because Jesus in this chapter of Mark, in Mark chapter 6, 30 through 44, is the compassionate prophet and teacher. He represents Moses for the people. As they are in the wilderness following around, trying to get near to him, Jesus is the greater prophet. He's the greater teacher than Moses. He's the one who provides for the people out of himself. Moses never provided for Israel. God did. Moses was just God's avenue to do so. He was God's teacher and God gave him the law. Jesus just speaks for God because he is God. He's the greater prophet. He stands in the place of Moses as he cares for the people out of compassion, out of the shepherding role that they need. Not just this, Jesus is the prophetic teacher who tells us how salvation actually occurs. It's not through the law. It's through faith and trusting God. That's the point. Now here's the second one. Jesus, the compassionate shepherd. Remember the text of verse 34, it says, Jesus saw the large crowd and he had compassion on them from the guts of himself. He had pity on them. And because he had pity on them, it, the reason was they were like sheep without a shepherd. And as King David was a shepherd and then king, so Jesus is the true shepherd of Israel and the king that they needed. Now, the statement about shepherd could seem innocuous. If I didn't give you the background on that, you could just read it and there were sheep without a shepherd. Well, we went to Ezekiel already, but here's the reason that that Ezekiel prophecy was given. In Ezekiel 34, 5 to 6, this is what he says. So they were scattered, the people of Israel were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them meaning that the people that God had put in place to go after the people of Israel, they continued to shirk their responsibilities and not do the thing that they were supposed to do. So Jesus stepping into this, the prophecy of, and God said, I'm going to send one like David, my shepherd David, and he's going to be shepherd over the people. That's Jesus fulfilling this prophecy. But I said that Jesus is like the greater king shepherd than David. Because David was a shepherd and he was kind of Israel's most significant king, and Jesus comes in the line of David, we should probably look to see what David says about shepherds. Anybody want to guess where we're going? Psalm 23. Remember how I said Mark is far too clever just to throw things away? He says, the Lord is my shepherd. It's David speaking, because that's the shepherd he really needs, even though he's the king. I shall not want, or I have no lack. He makes me to lie down where? Remember I said green grass was important? What Mark is saying, what the gospel writers are saying is, look at Jesus, the one who fulfills the shepherding needs of Israel, the one who is capable of making the people lie down in green grass, the one who is capable of providing for everything that they need. And then prophetically, David continues to write this beautiful poem saying, and this God is the one who restores my soul. Later on in Psalm 23, it says, and you make for me a table in the presence of my enemies. What does he do? God feeds his people. What is Jesus doing? 
It's feeding his people. So as Jesus comes in the line of David, as David was the shepherd king that Israel needed because Saul was such a bad one, and then the rest of the kings who followed after him were basically terrible also, God promises, I'm going to send you a good shepherd king, and Jesus is not just shepherd king, but he's shepherd saving king. There's so many correlations in the Old Testament about this whole idea of what it means to have the right shepherd. Jesus, as the perfect shepherd, the Lord, providing everything that they need, makes them to lie down in green grass. He makes them to to sit beside the still waters of the Lake of Galilee. He certainly restores their soul as he teaches them kingdom principles, and he feeds them as he prepares a meal for them. Now, this could just seem like conjecture or happy coincidence, right? Maybe Maybe I'm just pulling these things out of the Bible, trying to make my point. No, Jesus fulfills all these things. It's about him. He's the only one who possibly could fulfill this stuff. Mark makes this connection that Jesus is the shepherd who compassionately fulfills every shepherding need that Israel will ever have. By extension, the church. Here's the third thing. That Jesus is the compassionate provision and provider. He was God's plan from the start. There wasn't some other option. It's like, oh, well, here's my plan, and then you guys blew that one, so here's my new plan. It was always Jesus. It was always to establish over the people a shepherd that they truly needed, the kingly shepherd who would do the job that was required. At the centerpiece of this narrative is the issue above all issues. The miracle was not about food. It was about him. The miracle was utilizing something that they understood from their history about the grand meta-narrative story about how God has provided for his people from beginning to end. Now Jesus is the culmination and the fulfillment of all of these things as God's true provision for the world. But he's not just God's plan, he's also the provider because he's God himself. He's the one who looks to heaven, prays the prayer, and then somehow miraculously causes something to come out of nothing in the presence of them all. Jesus doesn't provide like others do. Like I said earlier, it wasn't Moses that gave the people the bread from heaven, it was God. It wasn't Moses who gave them the quail on the ground, it was God. It wasn't the people who were able to follow God and do the things that they were supposed to do and follow their shepherd correctly. No, that's why they had to send Jesus to be the provider for everything they needed. No, Jesus sent by God came to offer compassionate care to this people, those who were lost, who had gone astray, as the exact provision and provider for everything that they needed. And as they were in need 2,000 years ago of their true shepherd, so are you, so am I. That he sees us when we are lost and gone astray, he has compassion. The depths of who he is has pity for the situation that we find ourselves in, and he inserts himself into the situation to solve the problem. We're not talking about physical things here. We're talking about a spiritual condition that Jesus satisfies. So here's what I want you to know. What's the point? It's about Jesus. Everything that we are about is about 
Jesus. The reason we gather together, the point of preaching, the reason we sing, the reason we do fellowship together is because Jesus compassionately comes alongside of us and is the shepherd we truly need. He's God's true shepherd. Later on in the New Testament, we have these kinds of statements. This is by um, the, the writer of the Exalting Jesus commentaries, which I love. They're fantastic. It says, often in the Bible, the, picture, the, the Bible pictures our Lord Jesus as shepherd and as us as his sheep. Jesus is the Lord who is the my shepherd of Psalm 23. Jesus is the rejoicing shepherd of Luke 15 who goes after the lost sheep and leaves the 99 behind. Jesus is the good shepherd of John 10 who says that he is willing to lay his life down for his sheep. Jesus is the chief, chief shepherd of 1 Peter 5 who stands in place and honors the under shepherds who guide the way that he guides. He is the great shepherd of Hebrews 13 who provides everything that his people need in a greater way. Jesus is the shepherding Lamb of Revelation 7 who will lead us to springs of living water. We don't just need any shepherd. We need this one. And he willingly and lovingly supplies everything that we need. Do you want to marvel at Jesus yet? I hope you do. Because that's the point. The miracle is not the point. <laughs> the fact that God, Jesus can do the stuff that God does is not ultimately the point. The food is inconsequential. It's amazing. It represents so much of the history of the biblical narrative. But Jesus loves you so deeply that he's willing to supply everything that you need out of deep compassion for you. We can learn to better marvel at Jesus when we get this point. His deep, deep love for you, to be your shepherd when nobody else can be. Would you pray with me? And so, Father, we would ask that as we have seen in Mark's gospel, the glorious reality that Jesus is the shepherd we have long needed, that our condition as just people before we encounter the risen Christ is to be wanderers, to be wayward, to go our own way and to realize, God, that you have provided for us the one who leads, the one who guides, the one who shepherds and cares for us. It really should floor us, God. It should make us marvel at your goodness and your grandeur. It should put us in a really good way in our place showing us our desperate need for provision, our desperate need for a shepherd. So God, would you confirm in our hearts, in our minds, not just the stuff that Jesus does, but who he is. That we would marvel at him, that we would be in awe of him, that we would be enamored with him, that we would glory in him. And that because we stare deeply at who he is, we would be changed. I ask it for the glorious praise of your name, Jesus, and for our good. Amen.